This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 145 of the Dressage Radio Show. Welcome back to the show. Chris Stafford with you in Kentucky again this week. And joining me from France is Australian Brett Parbury. Brett, welcome back. Hi, Chris. How are you? Good, thank you. And you're enjoying some French cuisine, some French weather. You're living it up near Saint-Tropez. Life's not too bad right now, is it? <laughs> yeah, life's great. We, we're in, uh, we're in Vitaban at um, uh, the show... This beautiful French show run by Bernadette Brun, and um, it's just an amazing show, an amazing venue, um, 20-odd kilometres from Saint-Tropez, and, and it's just fantastic. Bernadette does a great job. She has a great team, and it, it's a really big show. There's a lot of horses here. I think I think there's 65 horses in the Grand Prix. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very competitive. Yeah, I know um, a lot of European riders, obviously, even England, English riders there, down there. Uh, it seems to be a popular venue. The location isn't too shabby, is it? No, it's not. And, I mean, it's like Little Britain. It's so many British riders here. I'm sort of, my lorry's parked in the middle of all of them. And, um, yeah, so even, even I've even got Gareth Hughes starting to sound a bit more like an Australian, <laughs> given, that if, given the fact that he lived there. But, um, um yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, the Brits obviously see this as a very um, strategic show for them throughout to, to kick off their year. I mean, you hear a lot of them saying that this is their first international for the year. Um, for a lot of us, I guess, it's the first international outdoor show um, for the year. And um, and the other thing is, being an Olympic year, you have a lot of these um, peripheral regions that are trying to get their qualifications to then get accepted as individuals representing their region to the Olympic Games. So, for example, you have Emily Ward, Annabelle Collins, um, both here sort of vying for the spot um, of the Caribbean. Um, I think it's the Caribbean. I'm not quite sure. I don't know what group that is. But anyway, they're vying for that one spot. They've been in Spain last week. Uh, sorry, Spain two weeks before, Portugal last week, and they're now here in Vitabarn. Um, a lot of the horses, but, I mean, that's the way the FEI have made it, and that's the rules that they've made. So the girls have had to do a lot of shows. And uh, Jessica Michelle is here. She also did Spain, Portugal, and here, um, <clears throat> trying to get their best eight scores uh, up for their Olympic ranking points to then hopefully go through as individuals to the Games. It really is an important uh, period right now, as you say. The qualifications are uh, deadlines is is fast approaching, and and you're there now for in in Europe for how much longer, Brett? I'm here. Uh, so I did a show in Poland. I did my first Grand Prix with Lord of Loxley in Poland. That was again a back-to-back -back, uh, show. Uh, then I do Vitabarn here, and then I have to go home uh, to do a CDI in Werribee with two of my small tour horses, Weltmeiser and Good as Gold, and then I have to then come back to here to concentrate on Lord of Loxley. Uh, the way our federation is, is doing the Olympic selection is um, after this show in Vitabarn, 
they choose a top eight combinations, and that eight will be put forward to our two selection events, which are Mannheim and Compiègne in France. So um, I'm hoping that if I can um, be strong here in Viterbaum, I'll make it into the top eight, and that will then allow me the chance to go to the selection events and um, and try and make the team uh, with Ford of Loxley. That would be wonderful. And you have to remind everyone, Brett, why you've had Lord Loxley and where you've had him based now for uh, mm. some time in Europe, haven't you? Yeah, we decided to, to when we bought Lord of Loxley in March 2010, uh, the wonderful owner, Clyde Wonderwald, that owns him, um, we had long discussions about this and we decided that with travel back and forth to Australia, not only being, being an expensive exercise, but you know there are health risks involved with travel, um, it was best to leave him in Europe, and um, we have the benefit that uh, the second rider in this program is Edward Gall. <laughs> so I'm not say second rider; that's a bit of a jibe at Edward. But I, um, I always joke saying, "Oh, gee, I'm lucky, you know, I've got a second rider like you." But um, <laughs> a backup, anyways, a backup jockey. It's a bit of a joke, but um, um, yeah, but. Um, at the end of the day, Edward and Nicole have given me the opportunity to, to be based from their stables again. Um, and Edward is very, very supportive. He he knows what my situation is. He knows I have a family, a business in Australia. Uh, last week I was in England teaching our Australian eventing team. So Edward just rides the horse in between. And then when I'm there, he then helps me with the horse. So um, I could not have a better uh, scenario for this, e- except for the fact that Lord of Loxley is very, very green at Grand Prix. He he hasn't he did his first Grand Prix in Poland, and this is his second Grand Prix um, outing. So, unfortunately, we can't fast track experience, and um, and wherever go, Brett Parry doesn't you know you just can't fast track experience. No, you sure can't. And we talked mm. about the geographical challenge as well. Someone who's going to talk about that uh, on this week's show is your friend Mary Seafried. She's going to be joining us here shortly uh, as an FBI O judge or five star judge. I managed to catch up with her a few days ago to uh, hear about those challenges that uh, they face down down under. And uh, it, you know, it, it's the same for everyone, I guess. And but you know, it does depend on your resources as to whether you can take advantage of the experience in the northern hemisphere. And uh, you're in that fortunate position, Brett. Yeah, yeah, I'm very well supported by Clive Wonderwald and my family, my wife uh, Mel and um, her family, and my side of the family. They absolutely give me all the support I need to do this. It's not ideal. Um, it's not an ideal scenario at all. And I'd like to have it another way. But to do it the way we do it, this is the only way we can do it. Um, so yeah, but uh, it'd be interesting to see what Mary says because she travels a lot, and um, I mean she's one of the most uh, sought-after judges in the world, and and um, and also a very giving person. So she um, she's around the world all the time. Her and Susie Huvenaz are. I'd like to see their frequent flyer points. And, um, I'm sure they've got a few. Yeah. Sorry, I just had a friend go walk in the office here, but um, yeah. So. 
Yeah, that's about the way it goes when you live down under and try to sort of mix it with the the big guys in Europe. Well, that's right, and you've got to be exposed to that level of competition, haven't you, to improve your own game. Well, let's um, let's hear from Mary about what it's like to be an FEI judge down under and uh, the challenges that uh, she faces, but the experience that, that she clearly has gathered in her career. Well, Maori, welcome to the show. Nice to have you joining me from Brisbane in Eastern Australia. Yes, it's um, quite warm this morning. It's, uh, we live in a subtropical climate here. Um, I think it's about already about 22, 23 degrees. Well, that's very nice and comfortable for a lot of people in the Northern Hemisphere who uh, are still shivering a little bit, I think, in, yes. in March. Yes. <laughs> well, I wanted to catch up with you, Mary, because the sport of dressage is really emerging down under, thanks to some wonderful ambassadors you have. But I wanted to get the dressage judge's perspective. Now, you've been a dressage, FEI dressage, five-star judge now for a number of years. Um, so let's begin a little bit with your background so people uh, that haven't heard of Mary Siegfried will be familiar with uh, how you got into the sport and what made you take up judging. Well, I got into sport as a rider, basically. Um, I come from a riding family, um, both my sisters were show jumpers, but um, and I did a little bit of eventing when I started off. But um, in the end, it was the I don't know the intellectual challenge also of dressage which um, really got to me. And perhaps I was a little bit too nervous to jump those really big jumps. So, and especially um, when I got married and had a family, dressage seemed to be the way to go for me because it was something I could um, practice at home. I must say, when the sport, when I was in the sport, it wasn't certainly at the standard it is now. Um, eventually, I got very busy with my professional life because I have just retired on Friday from my professional life, and um, I really didn't have too much time to compete and uh, train two horses. So I decided to put that aside as being something I'd get back to sometime in my life and um, then went into um, helping with the administration of the sport. So I've been on various um, national and state committees in Australia and also had some wonderful opportunities, I must say. Um, Some of you might remember Nick Williams from from England. He was the one who encouraged me and said, come on, you should try and become an FEI judge and Fortunately, Australia supported me at that time and so I went overseas and did all of my examinations overseas and um, then was fortunate enough to get onto the FEI dressage committee which gave me an opportunity to um, understand the sport a lot more from from the international perspective and uh, just before the um, Sydney Olympics in the late 1990s, I was made an O-level, now five-star judge, and judged the Sydney Olympics. And since then, I've done you know, various world championships, world equestrian games. Um, I'm particularly interested in Southeast Asia and the development of the sport here, so I've done the Asian Games and Southeast Championships, etc. But um, I'm still very involved in judging in my home country as well. And I think that's very important for a judge, whether you're international, five-star or not, to have a feeling for the depth of the sport 
um, from the grassroots upwards. That's about me in a nutshell. Yes, well, it's interesting that you, you came about it the way you did, Mary, and you've really very quickly risen to the top of, of the sport as a dressage judge in, in your country. And I'm presuming that now the Sydney Olympics was probably the highlight of your career, wasn't it, having, having the opportunity to judge an Olympics in your home I country? Was. Sydney Olympics was a fantastic experience, not only as a judge, but for anybody who was there. But I have to say... One of the most exciting has been the latest I judged at, which was the European Championships in Rotterdam. And, of course, um, dressage as a sport, I think, rose to new heights at, at that competition, and it was wonderful to be there. So when you say new heights, what do you perceive to be the shift in international dressage, then, that I, has taken it up another level? I think two things happened there. Firstly... Uh, Countries um, had produced very good competitors, a bigger range of countries. So the sport started to open up at the top. There were some performances there from many nations which were exceptional. The standard of the sport was also extremely high. If you see the number of competitors that were well over 70%, that was also um, exceptional. And, of course, then... The type of riding which the British team showed, I think, made gladden the hearts of all the judges there. It was a um, <clears throat> harmonious but yet still powerful way of riding and I think has become a, a benchmark for um, all dressage riders to aspire to. Well, that's interesting. Harmonious yet powerful... Uh, some would say a more sort of English traditional style of riding and it, and it is of course very different to maybe the Eastern European, just particularly German, Germany and the Netherlands, the, the powerhouses of, of dressage. Do you think then we've turned a corner, Mary, in the way where dressage is going now? I think what was, how I would see it is this, I think we saw evidence of riders that had taken a lot of care and to, do, to establish the correct type of contact which allows the horse to work from behind and over the back in its own carriage and doesn't um, restrict the horse in any way or its joints so that the horse has got the capacity to develop the full range of its stride and also the full range of adjustability, if you like. And I think that is the lesson to the riders. And I'm not saying all riders. The good ones at the top, they're all very, very um, good exponents of this. But as an example for, you know, the up-and-comings or the aspiring riders, whether at a national level or international level, that style of riding which produced, if you like, the happy athletes, sometimes that term's a little overused, they certainly were. I, I don't like to compare nations in their style of riding. I think there are good, good exponents everywhere. But for this to come out and win so consistently, I think, is, is um, something quite special. And I think it's like anyone who watches sport. They need not necessarily be an expert in that sport to appreciate what looks easy, effortless, 
and therefore becomes a harmonious and uh, and a nice picture to to watch uh, as a sport and it you know it we watched uh, figure skating for example we don't need to be skaters to know what looks flowing and effortless and i think that seems to be coming across now in this new shift in dressage mary yes i would have to agree i would have to agree i have a husband who's a sports nut really one well he's say. australian too <laughs> no he's not he's oh, austrian <laughs> oh i do beg your pardon he's austrian. well we'll, we'll call him australian. australian then he's obviously <laughs> converted to the australian sportsmanship yeah he's the only austrian who knows what cricket is all about <laughs> even i don't know that um but but he's not a horse person by nature and um he he watches the top dressage and he he understands the top, not the um, various um, small details which the dressage judges have to look at. But he knows what's good, if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. it just looks good. Well, let's mm. talk about the sport then in Australia and during the course of of your career as a judge, the changes that you've seen now in the rising standards, not least of all because of the expertise that the riders are harvesting when they go to Europe and then bring it back home. Yes, I've seen, um, over the many years that I've judged in Australia, now is an exciting time. Um, And I think it's also exciting at the recent George, the small tour level, we're beginning, and the young riders, um, we're beginning to see um, more understanding by the riders of what they want to achieve, um, maybe setting the right level of goals and the knowledge which is brought back into Australia from, from riders, and there have been quite a few now, who've um, spent their time overseas and come back and coached or become their state coaches. I know Mary Hannah has been a state coach in Victoria for some time. And Brett certainly does his bit, and Ricky McMillan coaches all over Australia. Um, that's very important, and I guess that every nation understands, and especially maybe North America, it, it takes some years for that to to flow through. It's not something that's instant, and people need to go and travel to competitions, and then everybody's looking at each other, and so on. So, and. They talk to each other as well. I think all of that um, process is now starting to produce um, some real results. Yeah. Well, one of your major challenges, of course, for any rider in Australia is the geographical distances that you have to cross to to participate in, in real competition. And it's all about competition, isn't it, to improve the competitor? Yes, yes it is. There's, there's always somebody who can be a good rider, but this is a competitive sport and a lot of the competition is won or lost on the actual um, mental capacity of the rider to be able to be um, calm but focused, ready um, and not be too overwhelmed by the situation because it's a bit different. Riding at home, things come up beautifully in your timing but in the dressage arena itself, um, those corners can come up pretty quickly and, and you have to be ready, ready and um, very prepared and riding under a lot of pressure too where there's a large audience, a knowledgeable audience and um, a lot of crowd um, participation, if you like, is important for not only the rider but also the horse to become um, 
confident to still be able to relax and compete and focus on their rider in this in this um, circumstance. Now, you mentioned some of the riders, you have a handful of riders that have excelled internationally, Mary, Australian riders, that is. Mm. Do you think that it is their successes, maybe at Sydney, maybe, of course, at WEG at 2010, but it is, is it those performances that are inspiring so many young people to come into the sport? Where do you see that coming from? Oh, yes, I do. Um, I, I think 2000, Kentucky was a, a highlight. I think the team did extremely well under difficult circumstances because the horses with, which travelled from Australia had a dreadful journey to get to the United States. Um, I think Rachel was very happy to have a horse still under her by the time she got into the Grand Prix. Um, of course, they become the, um, the stars, if you like, and the magazines here and the general equestrian press is is very supportive of them, and so and we also have um, <clears throat> a wonderful competition here in Australia, which is growing, and it's the biggest dressage competition there is, and it's a competition which is held between schools from what we call primary and secondary schools, and the single biggest dressage event held anywhere is probably the state championships in each state for that competition. Well, those kids are already being exposed to um, <clears throat> to the press and who, you know, they've picked out their idols and, you know, Brett's a bit of a star and everybody wants his signature and, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things. So all of that just pulls the sport along with it. Now, is that pool of young riders, Mary, is it coming up through the Pony Club, through the scholastic systems, through um, maybe um, self-sufficient uh, uh, riders, that is, those that are privileged to have the funds to, to progress in the sport, or is it people that are working their way up uh, by, by being a groom, a working student, and, and just taking the opportunities to be based with a top rider? It's a bit of both. I guess <clears throat> the inter-school competition has brought a lot of people into the sport who've not necessarily owned a horse before, but it allows a child to to participate in a team sport and get something back, like a um, you know what we call school colours or whatever, if they're successful. And when I see that, they are definitely a mixture of um, horsey families or people who are just being introduced to the sport. So that brings along a whole, um, <clears throat> if you like, um, strength with it, which impacts on coaches and people breeding horses and all sorts of things. And then I guess at a certain age, and it may be when kids leave high school, they decide, well, which way am I going to go? Am I going to stick with this sport? And if they are going to stick with the sport, then they need to make a decision to either participate in some work or so on which allows them to um, pay for themselves if you like on their way through and also many many are taking up positions as as grooms helpers they might only do that for one or two years or we also have what's called a, a gap year here which is the year between high school and university um, a lot of kids just take off during that year and many of them go overseas and they're based all over the place in, in several countries in Europe. Even some will go to the United States. 
the biggest thing for us here is to try and make the right contacts for those people who show some natural talent and commitment to the sport. Now, as a judge, Mary, are, are you finding that there are more people that are ready to come into the world of judging and, and follow you and the, the career path that you've taken? Is it, have you been an inspiration for dressage judges that you've noticed? Oh, well, I hope I've been an inspiration. But um, in Australia, we, um, I'm chair of the National Dressage Judges Committee here and um, I guess... Um, along with helpers, of course, um, started a very good... I think it's a very good system for us to accredit, educate and accredit judges here. And it's actually part of our overall Australian Sports Commission scheme where we're actually an accredited course with them. Um, and I guess we want to bring people along into the judging world at a younger age. We want to encourage um, good riders um, to to take up judging as well once they are um, deciding to, you know, to reduce their commitment to their sport. Um, I think, yes, we have um, a very strong pool of judges here and I hope we educate them as best we can. Mm. So what's next for Mary Seafree? Where are you travelling this year, Mary? Well, this year uh, I'm going to the United States and um, I'm just trying to think where I am going. And, uh, of course, I am coming to London. I'm not on the ground jury for London, but I'm on the appeals committee for, for London. So I will be there and I will be watching. And maybe that's the most enjoyable seat in the house. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. Absolutely. You get to enjoy the sport without the pressure. You don't obviously <laughs> don't mind the pressure of then of being a judge and, and making That's an interesting decisions. one. That's an interesting one because, as you know, judges have... Um, over the last few years, have probably come under quite a lot of um, criticism in the press and, and so on, especially at the um, highest level. And that criticism also occurs at the lowest levels as well, I, I can tell you. Um, one has to learn to, to have strong shoulders, I guess. The other thing is... Why do we judge? You know, sometimes we ask ourselves, why do we judge? And I think the thing is that every time you sit down, whether no matter where it is, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to try and get it right. Every judge likes to do the best job they can. Um, we're not infallible as judges. We will make mistakes. But luckily, we have a team who's judging with us. And the team will always help you. Well, on that note, Mary, um, we look forward to you officiating around the world for a long time to come. And I want to thank you so much for spending time with us here on the, on the show this week. And, and good luck for the rest of the year. We'll see you in yes. London. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, Brett, as I said, Mary has got an enormous amount of experience uh, going around the world. And, and, and this is something that you, every time you go out into the different countries that you go to in Europe, must be a, a terrific experience too. It, you, it's yeah. just going to help you in your career and what you then can take back and show in Australia. Yeah, I mean, there's so much of it. The actual writing of the test is <clears throat> such a small part. I mean, the dressage arena is the same in Australia as it is in Europe, so that doesn't change. It's all the bits and pieces involved with getting to the show and being here and 
and when to train and when to go into the main arena and and just I mean I've hired a lorry a truck and um, driving that 17 18 hours down to the south of France all those little things and I mean I'm lucky I'm in my career now I'm to the stage where I can arrive in a country and within three weeks attend an international show with a groom a tack box full of gear thank you to Edward <laughs> thanks Edward a <laughs> uh, tack box full of gear um, a rug I mean I'm riding in all borrowed stuff I just arrive in Europe with a pair of boots a pair of gloves my tails and I'm ready to go and um, and Edward and my support team a, a wonderful lady called Yet Vanderstein who I met at the Sydney Olympic Games who's been they've been my second family since uh, 2000 in Sydney these people just pull together and, and next thing you know I've got a groom a truck um, gear a horse and I'm on the road to a show and um, I'm very very lucky I mean it's, it, it's, it's the only way I can do it is if I didn't have these people supporting me it would be impossible well as you mentioned you just have the one ride and we all know what it's like when you go to a competition you only have the one horse to ride it's a bit of a luxury there's lots of other time to uh, reflect to watch others riding of course but how are you spending that downtime out of the tack Brett are you doing any teaching yeah I mean when I come over here it's like catching up with old friends so so people like Judy Harvey and um and Annabelle Collins has sort of said to me, look, you know, can you just run the eye over what we're doing? Um, these are people I've known for a long time. And um, when we get to the show like this, they like a little fresh injection of information and I don't want to interfere too much. I just give them sort of, you know, they ride their own system and I just tell them what I see. And, yeah, so you can pick up a little bit of work. I mean, I've got the Australian eventing team on my schedule um, to, to try and improve their dressage going forward to to London a lot of my time is spent over in England so I'm for example um, between Viterbarn shows I must travel back to England to um, attend an eventing clinic I was in England last week and uh, or two weeks ago and um, I, I have to sort of keep my eye on their role as well and my other role which is the coaching role for the eventing team so um which is as i've said to you before on the program that's a direction i'm I'm, i'd like to go with my career is into this sort of high level coaching and um but my career of writing is not over yet so i'm still holding on to that as well so i'm trying to juggle uh two balls at once um and um, you know it's 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 hard, but it's also good. I, I like it that way. I like to be busy, and it's good. So you're jetting around from Poland to France to England and back. And so, mm. when do you actually go back to Australia, Brett? And you said you have to some ride some small tour horses down there. Yeah, I I leave here on the sixth. Oh, sorry, we drive out of France here on the fourth of Mar- March, and I fly out on the sixth of March, and I get home on the seventh, and then. Um, I do a couple of clinics around and about Australia and then I have to be in Werribee, I think, third week of March. I think it is, yeah, third week of March. And then I have an eventing clinic in the fourth week of March and then I have to be back here to do a stay-in show um, in Holland with Lord of Loxley, start of April. And then I'll then look forward, if I'm in that top eight, I'll then look forward to setting up a bit of a plan going to to Mannheim, which is in the first week of May. 
So I'm thinking my plan might be uh, a Dutch national show um, in preference to, say, Hagen or one of those bigger internationals. I think I would go to a national show, train a little bit of what I need to do, and then go to Mannheim um, from there. Well, that's quite a summer plan, spring and summer schedule, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's been, yeah. It certainly is, and uh, a few air miles along the way. Yeah, yeah, I could do without the travel, I must say. That, that pit, um, I could do without. I like to be busy, but sitting in aeroplanes doesn't doesn't really do much for me. But, um, you know, it's great to get home and, and see everybody, and I've got a wonderful team of staff and, and a wonderful team of horses and, of course, a wonderful wife that backs me up through all of this. So, um I have to get back there and support them as well, and hopefully, hopefully, my wife will be able to go to a show as well, and I'll be able to go along as as her support. Oh, that would be great! Now, I presume you use modern technology to stay in touch with the the folks back home, do you? While yeah. you're on the road? No, no, technology and I don't get along. We, um, I, I always joke. I have this magnetic force around me when as soon as I go near something, it doesn't work. Like we've had Skype and it doesn't work and all these things, so we just talk, we just resort to telephone now. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. You know, there's that wonderful thing if you have an iPhone is FaceTime that you can be oh. watching each other while you're talking to each other on your iPhone. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Lots. Yeah, of, well, lots of tools there. These things, yeah. I mean, I'm hopeless with technology. I feel uh, I, <laughs> I have no sort of knowledge of it at all. <laughs> So you're not one of these people that collects apps then and plays with the apps when they're not riding? No, no, no. As soon as you mention app, my brain switches off. <laughs> well, I do want to tell everybody, uh, Brett, you know, I love these apps and uh, we get uh, lots of recommendations here. and We find apps where you can listen to the Dressage Radio Show and a new one came to my attention recently. That's called Podcaster. So apart from hallway feeds and Instacast, you can also use Podcaster, and that will automatically download uh, the latest episodes of the shows that you subscribe to here on the Horse Radio Network and lots of other podcasts from around the world too. So try check that one out. I'm liking that yeah. one right now, Podcaster. Sounds good. Mm, yeah, good, sounds good very one. good. It's a good way to listen to them on the go, you know. Yeah, I mean the show, and it gives people a chance to meet the or listen and meet the personalities in the sport. It's it's wonderful. It is, and you know these podcasts, uh, the the sorry, the the apps also give me the chance to listen to the radio around the world. And one of the things I've been able to catch up with is the cricket from uh, the English Test. Uh, well, not English Test. It's One Day Internationals right now. Anybody who knows me will know that I love cricket. And I've been able to listen to it live from Dubai, England versus Pakistan. So uh, I'm a happy camper, Brett, if I can listen to my cricket as well. One more. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, funny you, uh, funny you mentioned cricket. I, um, I've been talking to, uh, I'm hopefully going to get this organized, where um, one of the musicians from the, the rock band 10CC is going to be working with me with, on my new freestyle. Um, with Lord of Loxley and I, they sung that famous song uh, stating that they don't like cricket you know the song? oh I don't know that they you don't, don't? They don't oh, like cricket? oh you must know it oh yeah. no I don't like cricket oh yes yeah. I know that one yes yeah I can't think <laughs> yeah. of the name of it but I know that part because it's part of the Australian um, I don't like cricket that's right the uh, advertising campaign for the cricket in Australia anyway <laughs> 10cc are um, all the, actually one of the band members of there he's very very keen to do to work with me on a freestyle for Lord of Loxley, so I'm very excited by that. 
Oh, that's really fun. Yeah, that mm. I think is, is a great fun part of, of what you're doing when you get to that level and you need a freestyle program is actually devising that for your horse and finding yeah. the music to work. That's a lot of yeah. fun. I mean, you've got to have a twist nowadays. You just can't roll up with... Okay, you can roll up with nice music, but it's nice to have a twist and a story behind your cur and those sorts of things really add to the flavour of your performance, I think. You know, yes. when you've really got someone who's... A famous musician, and yeah. Yes, you've got to have an edge, and uh, and the story, and the music has to tell the story that has to fit your horse, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. And it has to all weave together in into a performance. I've got Carl Hester trying to call me here. We're all going to a steakhouse tonight. Oh dear! Well, I better let you go on that note then. Yeah, where Where are you? <laughs> well, we'll tell Carl hi from us, from from me. I saw him in Wellington. You know, when he was down there for the Masters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did was, a good job there. Yep. And he was on the show there. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, always. He always does that. a good job. I mean, shouldn't be surprised when I say he does a good job. That guy is one of the best riders of all time, and. Absolutely fantastic. He's a, he's a character and he's here with three or four horses or something and he's just, yeah, fantastic to watch. And he's a lot of fun to party with too. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, uh, Brett, I'll let you go and uh, wish you well with the rest of your European tour there. We'll catch up with you. Uh, we're getting a little bit closer to that selection when you know what your plan will be for their final run at the Games. Yep, thank you very much, Chris, and thanks for supporting us. Oh, you bet. And uh, safe travels back to Australia. We look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week. Don't forget our show notes are over at dressageradio.com and you can join us on our Facebook fan page as well and leave your comments there. And if you want to uh, send any messages to Brett and wish him well while he's on tour there, you can do that by posting them on our Facebook fan page. And I will always pass those messages along to him. Sometimes it's hard to catch up with him, but eventually we do. The globetrotter that he is. Well, that wraps it up for us this week. Uh, Again, thanks to Brett for joining me. Thanks to my guest, Mary Seafried. And thank you all for listening. Enjoy your dressage.